Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. Hi, Brad. Hey, Rev. What's up? How are you? I'm good. I'm eating olives, but I'm going to stop now for the podcast. <laughs> I can't stand olives. I love them. You have a you have an interesting palate. There's like uh, things that are really salty and they're not for you. That's not true. I like really salty stuff. I just don't like olives. I don't like uh, pickles. T- I don't like pickles. I don't like the texture of tomatoes. I don't like the texture of mushrooms, and I don't eat seafood. Yeah, I mean, those are all pretty, pretty um, big no-no tropes in Rev life, and then in a lot of people's lives. <laughs> but speaking of things I do eat, have you had any good burgers lately? Mm. Well, it's been a minute now, but I wanted to talk about this burger that I had at Buddy's Pizza. Because we spoke to Wes Fakula from Buddy's Pizza. Okay, now I'm really done with the olives. Sorry. And um, <laughs> and uh, so I went there because when we interviewed him, he said on his podcast that um, that Buddy's Pizza's burger was, you know, nothing on the menu is bad. Buddy's Pizza's burger is, is quality tested and great. And um, after eating it, I believe it that to be true. But I also believe that it's heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by um, another very famous Detroit area burger called the Redcoat Burger at Redcoat Tavern. They were really similar. Um, so I don't know. I have mixed feelings. Mixed feelings. So in, in the world of burgers, describe what similar means. Well, when you eat as many burgers as I do and as you do and as I think any good red-blooded American should do, you you start to find similarities in different kinds of burgers. Like there are gourmet burgers. You'll find that, I guess, a lot of burgers that have, let's say, dry-aged beef are going to taste similar in the same kind of funky way. Um and if I'm going to be specific about these two burgers, they both have almost the exact same sauce, same bun, shredded lettuce. Um, they both use Piedmontese beef. They're just, they're just, it, it's like when you go to a, a nicer restaurant that's not a fast food restaurant and you eat a burger and you're like, this tastes a lot like a Big Mac or a Whopper. It evokes that same memory. That's what I mean when burgers are similar. And, and ultimately, did you feel like you really wish you were eating a Buddy's pizza? Well, I was also eating a Buddy's pizza. <laughs> Well, that's the way to do it. Yeah, so it was fine. Also, the French fries there were crazy good. Wedge fries, really good. So, you know, all in all, it wasn't a loss. It was just, it was just something new and also familiar, oddly. Well, I will be heading back to our mutual home state of Michigan here in about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as tradition has it, I always go out and eat a burger with my mother. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have not picked a burger yet. Maybe we'll get the buddies. I really want you to go to One-Eyed Betty's. All right. Where's One-Eyed Betty's? In Berkeley. Okay. I'll t- I will talk to Mama Rev. All right, good. Tell me about your burger situation these days. So I had a, I had a pretty unique burger the other day um, at Brother Jimmy's. In fact, it was the Brother Jimmy's live location in Union Square. And uh, when the chef, Chef Eva there told me about it, I was like, oh, I want that. I want it now. And essentially, it's, it's called Beat the Farm, and it's a breakfast burger. So it has bacon, egg, and cheese on it. Uh, but what makes this burger unique, you know, other than that they use Schweiden Sons ground beef, plug, 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 um, is that there's no bun. Uh, mm. Instead, it's served on a bowl of French fries. And you still think this is a burger? I do think it's a burger. I, I mean, why would you not consider that a burger? Because for me, the bread is an essential part of a burger. You're, you're, you're saying that for it to be a burger, there are certain elements for mm-hmm. that, that come up as a requirement and that... Without those requirements, it's not a uh, it's not a yeah, burger. Pretty much, but, it's ground ground meat and and that, and that's 
what that meat is, is, is a point of contention and, and bread. It's really just those two elements. And, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be bread. In fact, if you had told me that the French fries surrounded the burger or were on both sides of the burger, I'd call it a burger. But because it's below? But because it's, you're essentially serving a, a burger patty on a bed of fries, it kind of just reminds me, it's just like ground meat on fries. How do, you feel, how do you feel about a hot dog that does not come in an oblong roll? I'd still call it a hot dog, or maybe it's just a wiener. What if it was, what about an Olga dog? How do you feel about Olga dogs? Oh, man, I haven't had one of those in so long. Now I just want an Olga dog. (laughs) That's a hot dog, because it's like a pig in a blanket. (laughs) So while you and I debate what is and what is not a hamburger hot dog, I think we should uh, segue to our guest today. Uh, Most of his life has been spent in the public eye debating conversations just like this. And so we'll have to ask Dan Pashman from Sporkful if a bacon, egg, and cheese uh, burger on top of fries is still a burger. Works for me. All right. Well, I want to welcome Dan Pashman from the Sporkful to the podcast today. He's been nominated twice for a James Beard Award. Uh, he's the host of the Sporkful podcast. He's the author of a, a book called Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Dan even has his own series on the cooking channel called You're Eating It Wrong. Uh, you may have seen him on the Today Show, the Chew, Food Network, Cooking Channel, History Channel, a number of other places. Uh, Dan, is a burger with no bun served on top of fries still a burger? Yes. It is. I think that I think this is one of those cases where the word burger has two meanings. There's the food burger, which is like a, a patty of meat shaped in a burger shape. Um, and then there's the dish burger, which is like that patty of meat on a bun, you know, possibly with whatever fixings you want to add. So I think it can mean two things. But um, but a, 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 a burger patty on top of a pile of fries is not the dish burger, but it is the food burger. So if I got more specific and I said, is a, is a patty on top of fries a hamburger, what would you say? Well, I mean, I think the word burger is just is kind of just shorthand for, for hamburger or cheeseburger. So it's been the same answer, which is like, you know, like if, if you went into a restaurant and said, I'll take a burger, and they brought you out a, a, a burger patty on top of a pile of fries, you would say, like, what the hell is this? So there is a dish called burger that is typically served on a bun. But, like, you know... If you go to the supermarket and say, I'm going to buy burger meat, it doesn't necessarily come with a bun, you know. What do you guys think? I want to know if there's like a sporkful food dictionary out there where I I can read up on these things. There should be. I mean, I got the book, and there's a glossary in the back of the book. But there's always more terminology debates to be had. I I want to disagree with you just because I was listening to WTF the other day, and you and Marin had a really vitriolic argument about i think it was uh burritos right i want to get into it as hard as you guys did but i just don't you this is how you talk about food and i i sort of bend to your will well but i mean uh i'm just another eater out there really i mean i may have spent more time thinking about these things than most people but it's funny brad most people don't let that stop them from telling me their opinions (laughs) Uh, i'm becoming a huge coward i'm shrinking into myself um I, I personally don't think a, a patty on top of fries is a burger. And uh, there, was some, there was something else hamburger-related that I wanted to take issue with um, that I saw you doing online the other day, but I think we'll save it for the end of the show when we get back into burger talk. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to stand up, and, and, and I'm going to stand up for this dish as a burger. Uh, Dan, the background is before you hopped on the line here, Brad and I were talking about burgers we've eaten recently, uh, and I recently ate a burger at Brother Jimmy's called the Beat the Farm. And it's just you know bacon, egg, and cheese on top of a patty on top of French fries, and to me, 
it was a burger, and basically it was just an excuse for me to skip the carbs I didn't want and go right to the carbs I really did want. <laughs> that does sound pretty amazing. I can't lie. I can't lie. So, Dan, let, let's let's talk about a podcast. Uh, how does one go from being a podcaster to on the cooking channel? What's the journey there? Well, uh, I mean, the short version of the story is, you know, I started my podcast about six years ago um, when podcasting was uh, not as, as popular as it is now. And, you know, I, I had worked in radio, and that was really my love. And I sort of felt like I, I wanted to start a podcast because um, friends of mine were getting into it, and I thought it was a good opportunity. And, um, you know, the, the idea of the Sporkful podcast was really just sort of like the best idea for a podcast that I had. The other ideas were pretty bad. And I was like, I feel like I have a kind of unique approach to food, and I, and I, and I just sort of started it in my living room essentially as a side project. Um, but, you know, it was an, a very, it, since day one, even though it was a side project for years, it was always like my goal was to make this thing into a job. And there was sort of a single-minded focus for a number of years, long years, when I was doing it for nights and weekends and essentially making no money doing it. And after, you know, after a number of months, maybe within the first year, I started doing web videos for Slate, uh, the, web, the website Slate, and Cooking Channel saw those videos. And they got in touch and hired me to host a web series that they had conceived called Good to Know. And we did two seasons of that, and they liked that a lot. And so then they, you know, that was like now three or four years into this journey at that point, and they said, you know, what else do you got? You know, do you have an idea for us? You know, why don't you pitch us something? We want to build something around you. And I said, great. So I came in, and I pitched them, you're eating it wrong, which was more along the lines of the Sporkful uh, podcast, more like this hyper-detailed approach to eating. It's not for foodies. It's for eaters, we like to say. It's not really about chefs or restaurants or recipes uh, or farm-to-table, blah, blah, blah. Not that I'm not interested in those things. I just feel like there's so much great stuff out there already about those things. I wanted to really differentiate what I was doing. And so... They went for You're Eating It Wrong, and it was a web series for a while, and now it's been come, turned into a TV special, and hopefully uh, will be turned into an actual real-life TV show in the not-too-distant future. Um, so I don't know if I answered the how. I mean, the how, really? Um, the how of how, you, of how that came to be, I think it was a combination of good luck, um, having a, a perspective on food and on my work that stands out and is different from what other people are doing, um, and then just being tireless about it, you know, like it's not, it hasn't been glamorous, I have to tell you, you know, like marketing, the marketing side of what I've done and building it and building it into a business and turning it into a job that I can, you know, pay my bills with and support my family with is a slog, like it's a slog. Um, there's not like a single moment that I can say like I was making a web video and, you know, Daddy Warbucks showed up and backed a truck of money up to my house, like that never happens. You know, it's not like I sent out one magic tweet or made one viral video that changed everything. Like, it was just, there are a few moments that I can point to where important things happened, but, like, by and large, it was a matter of just, like, come hell or high water, this is going to succeed, and I'll do whatever it takes. And it was more that than any, like, single moment of genius. Right on. When someone's getting started in podcasting, I think one of the more difficult ways to really get it going is having engaging guests on. And you've had a huge number of, of engaging guests. Um, I remember the first, the very first Sporkful episode I ever heard was with Weird Al Yankovic, and that was years ago. Um, how did you start getting interesting guests? I would say of the big name guests I've gotten, they all came about one of two ways, or at least earlier on, you know, now that I'm at, you know, my podcast is now at WNYC, New York Public Radio, which is really exciting, and 
they do so many great podcasts here, so it's a center for me to be part of it, and they've invested in the sh in the podcast. So, and just being attached to WNYC allows me to get bigger name guests because you know publicists and famous people will answer your calls. But, but I got weird out before I was at WNYC, and I and and same with Mark Maron and Rachel Maddow and people like that. So those came about one of two ways. One is you know I had worked as a producer in media for a number of years before I started a podcast. So I had friends in the media business. I had worked with Mark Maron. I worked with Rachel Maddow. So it wasn't so hard for me to basically ask them for a favor and be like, hey, you know, can you come on my Rinky Dink podcast? You know, um, and because we were still friendly, they were happy to do that. Um, so it's, you know, part of it is just like, look, you can't be shy about asking for favors. Um, I try to be really generous when other people ask me for help, um, and you know I think that you know over time people see that and they'll be more likely to help you when you need help. And I'm not shy about asking other people for help or for favors when I need it, and I try my best to reciprocate whenever I can. And so that's a lot of them. With someone like Weird Al, that was just again like good old-fashioned persistence. Like I love Weird Al. He has all these songs about food. It seemed like such a no-brainer to have him on. Um, I saw that he was coming to New York for a show. I just did a bunch of Googling to find his publicist, who wasn't is not so easy to find, but I found this guy, emailed him. He basically said, look, it's too last minute. You know, We can't do it this time around, but get in touch in a few months, maybe. So I'd email him in a few months, and he'd say, eh, not now. Email me again in a few months. But I just didn't give up, and I would keep emailing him. You know, And, and finally he said, oh, okay, listen, Al's got a children's book coming out. How about you do it for that? Great, okay. You know, and I email again in a few minutes, I, a few months. I hear the book's coming out. When's the, you know, when can we do this? He says, okay, you can do it by phone next week, or you can wait till June, a few months, you know, which was a few months away, and you can do it in person backstage before his show in Upper Westchester, which at that point was like two hours from where I lived. I said, screw that. I'm going in person. I want to meet Weird Al. Plus, it'll be a better interview and better podcast episode. So, but like that was months. I would say eight months to a year of periodic checking in and nagging, polite nagging, followed by three or four hours round trip in a car to go backstage for 40 minutes to meet Weird Al and interview him. And that was well worth it, you know, but a lot of booking guests is just about um, being, being comfortable getting rejected and being persistent until you get rejected. I'm, I'm super jealous of your conversation with Weird Al. Yeah, it was pretty, and he's such a nice guy and just so funny. And I saw him live in concert a few months back. Uh, that was after I interviewed him, and he was so good. Just like I, I don't, I honestly, as much as he is beloved, I don't think he gets the credit he deserves for being like a really one of our great satirists. And his concert was like a fully formed, uh, a vision, a, a cohesive vision that like encapsulated the sort of underlying themes of all of his work of just sort of mocking celebrity culture and rock and roll stardom and it was so funny and so good just everyone i encourage you when weird al comes to your town go see it it was amazing i, I agree with you it, it has been proven by scientists that satire and puns are the highest form or a show of the highest form of intelligence and so <laughs> uh, i scientifically believe that weird al is uh, hilarious and creative uh, i had a very small brief run in with with al once uh, i met him at a heavy metal show i don't know if you know the band seven dust um, but yeah. he, he was at the same Seven Dust show I was at. I don't know why. Uh, and I had a backpack full of candy. And I walked up to him and I was like, Al, I'm like a massive fan. He goes, me too. You like Seven Dust? And I was, <laughs> I was, talking, I was, talking, I was talking about Al. And I said, well, yeah, that too. I said, 
by the way, I got some pixie sticks. Do you want some candy? And he looked at me and his eyes popped out of his head as if he was like large Marge from, from Pee Wee. And, yeah. and he was, oh, my God, I love sugar. And we ate pixie sticks together and had mangoes pretty cool. That's, That's so awesome. I, uh, I have a quick Weird Al story as well. It was the first concert I ever went to was a Weird Al concert. And we sat front row, my mom and I, and he came out into the crowd dressed as Elvis, sat on my mom's lap, gave her his handkerchief, and when he left, it was covered in blood, which was horrifying, and I had that image in my head about Weird Al for the longest time. <laughs> oh, my God. Whose blood was it? I don't know. To this day, I have no idea. I don't know what was happening there, but I'll never forget it. The, ki- <laughs> the, the, the kismet of the guests on this show today are amazing. I just, I, I just need a different shirt to match the two of you. <laughs> Get on that red and white gingham yeah. shirt tip. <laughs> so, so going back to the show and and, and 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 perseverance and persistence, it seems to me, and you know, this is not just I think with with podcasters or or people in the media, but uh, you know, somebody comes onto the scene, whatever there is in tech or fame or whatever that you've never heard of, and suddenly they seem huge. It's easy for people to get this perception that they came out of nowhere and they don't realize that you know years and years and years of just sticking with it and sticking with it is is what gets them to that point. Uh, and, and I think, Dan, you and, and your show, how long has it been on now? Uh, we're coming up on six years on the podcast. I mean, that that's a testament of like, look, there you know, there are people that for the first time saw you on the cooking channel two weeks ago and you're special and almost like you got, you know, to them feels like you got plucked out of nowhere. Right. No, totally. And even when I tell the story, you know, like I'm not going to bore you with every detail, but like, you know, when I tell the story, it's still, it's like, I started a podcast in my basement, then I was doing web videos for Slate, then I was on Cooking Channel, then I got a book deal, then WNYC picked the show up, and it sounds like, holy crap, this, you know, like, this is this, um, and it is a great story, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've gotten, and for all the people who've, you know, connected with the work, but, yes, you're totally right, Rev, it does not, um, you know, it doesn't come easy. So you're, you're, let's call you, you can disagree with this, but a professional podcaster. Would you say that's... You yeah, know, that's, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll wear that badge with pride. All right. So for other people who are, are getting into the podcast, uh, the business, or who people are trying to be, you know, somewhat of a media voice, you know, what what types of monetization is available for somebody doing what you're trying to do? Um, I mean, the major options are, you know, you can sell ads in your podcast. You can ask your listeners for donations to support what you're doing. Um, and, you know, give them some cool swag in return. Um, and then there's sort of your tertiary things like um, live events uh, can be helpful. Um, you know, I, I think that that to some degree that's something that still is, you know, that, that the monetization, the economics of podcasting, I think, sort of have yet to shake out uh, long term in terms of exactly how much money is going to, are people going to be able to make. Um, but, you know, it's growing very quickly right now and it's very exciting. Um, I think that especially once we can get sort of better metrics on the podcast, that will help to get bigger companies involved in sponsoring. But those are kind of the big three, ads, donations. I mean, you know, merchandising, if you want, you know, if certain podcasts can fit into that. You know, then there's uh, the other thing people do is, you know, to sell uh, back episodes, you know. So, like, that sort of that ties to donations. So maybe... Maybe only your your X number of most recent episodes are available to the general public, and then your older ones people will pay for. Um, and you know, if if you have a hardcore enough fans who will pay for that access to those episodes, then you can you can do very well that way as well. You mentioned it can be difficult to get good metrics on how widespread your podcast is. How are you checking metrics for the sport pool? I mean, I have you know we have an internal system here at WNYC um, that works, I'm sure, as well as any out there. 
um, and I'm sure better than most, but, um, but you know, just in general, you know, you, you, nobody knows how many of the episodes that get downloaded actually get listened to or how much of them get listened to when in the episode people drop out. Um, and those are the kinds of things that I think make advertisers kind of reticent to spend millions and millions of dollars. That being said, you know, they spend millions of dollars on display ads and, you know, long after human beings had basically evolved the ability to look at a website and not see display ads, like your brain learned to completely block them out from your eyesight, companies still spend millions of dollars on display ads because at least, like, they can see it. They're like, oh, there's my ad. So, and people click on it, I guess. But, you know, I, I, I think the metrics are important, but I also kind of feel like, you know, the 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 thing that podcasting has is the connection with the audience. You know, that's the, that's what audio, that's what radio has, that's what the audio medium has, that, web, that video can't do, that television can't do, that, um, you know, we can do in audio, and that is there's an intimacy, there's a connection with listeners that you get, and I think that companies and brands are starting to realize that that's something that they can't get elsewhere. You know, people have become so... People expect to be marketed to all the time. They expect everyone to be trying to sell them something constantly. And so we've sort of evolved the ability to kind of tune a lot of that out. And the thing about podcasting, because the host has this special relationship with the listener, uh, you can kind of get past that firewall that people have sort of built without even realizing it and actually connect with people when you're doing your marketing. And to me, that that's sort of the most exciting thing, I think, about the potential of it. Where where do you host your podcast, or what technology do you use to host it? Uh, I do it at WNYC, so they have their own internal system. I honestly don't even know exactly what it's called. Um, when I first started out, before I came to WNYC, I, I was at Libsyn. Um, I, I had the podcast hosted there, which was all right. Um, you know, I, I I don't I don't I actually don't really have like an encyclopedic knowledge of all the options of what's out there today um, in terms of where you host the show. I think that. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know how much difference it makes. The most important thing is that it's reliable, that, you're, you know, that the site's not crashing, that your episodes are there, that people can download them, that kind of stuff. So do you, do you oversee the website at all, or is that also WNYC? No, I do the website, along with my producer. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I had the website redesigned about a year and a half ago, or a year ago, um, and I, I do all the blog posts in partnership with my producer. What uh what pro, what uh what publisher are you using for the website? Uh, it's WordPress. I love WordPress. Are there any tools or plugins that you're using on the website that help you to promote the show? I have a, I work with a web developer who you know he I I uh, don't know that I've ever actually implemented a plugin myself. I'm not that technologically savvy for a, a so-called uh, pioneer podcasting, but um you know it's it's it is hard. There, there, there are only a few ways that I think have really been proven to grow a podcast audience substantially, and we're still at the point where there's a lot of people who don't listen to podcasts. So anytime you're marketing something to the general public, like through a website where everyone goes on the web, everyone watches web video, when you're, you know, if you're marketing to the general public, a large percentage of the people that you're marketing to don't listen to podcasts yet. Uh, they will, but they don't yet. And so you're marketing to a lot of people who it's going to fall on deaf ears. And so, you know, the more that you can target your marketing to people who you know already listen to podcasts, like, you're going to be over the biggest hurdle right off the bat with them. And so, you know, marketing within podcasts and that kind of thing is, 
sort of the, uh, I think that's more effective than stuff that we would do on the website. That being said, I've never invested a ton of time and effort into my website. You know, like, there was a, a period of a couple months last year where I had a couple volunteers and we were writing like one blog post a day at most, maybe four a week, on the week, like one per week day. And the web traffic went up a little bit, but we felt like it wasn't really growing a podcast audience. Now look, if I hired a team of, of bloggers and was putting up 20 blog posts a day and we were getting, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of unique uh, visitors to the website per month, that would probably help the podcast. But, you know, the amount of work and cost and effort in that, you know, I'm not so sure it would be the best move. So when you're measuring the effectiveness of something you're doing, what are you, are you measuring analytics on the site? Are you measuring, you know, the podcast performances at social media? How do you sort of gauge the effectiveness of, of, of Dan? I mean, in terms of growing the podcast, it's the podcast numbers. You know, that's the one thing I look at. Um, in term, you know, uh, the rest of it is sort of a little bit, you know, a little bit of kind of like getting a vibe. Like, you know, there's some episodes we put out that I feel like I get a lot more tweets and emails and Facebook messages about than others. And and I sort of gate, you know, my my anecdotal evidence there is like, oh, that episode connected with people and provoked more of a reaction. Um, you know, but that's anecdotal. Um, you know, the main thing is the, the, the numbers. But it is like, you know, the whole thing is kind of, it still sort of feels a little bit like, hocus pocus, you know, to me, like, it's like, you, the numbers go up, and that's great, but sometimes the numbers don't go up as much as you want, uh, but you get a great reaction from the audience, and you feel good about it in that sense, or like, even if the numbers are going up, I feel like we haven't gotten a good reaction, or a, a good publicity hit, or some kind of new hook or thing, I'll get sort of antsy, and be like, we gotta get out there, we gotta, let's pitch me, let's get on, let's get on this show, let's get on that show, let's pitch a blog post to this people, let me write something for those guys. Let me get on that show. You know, I, I'm, I would say, like, I'm honestly not a huge analytics person, like, and maybe that's my, maybe that's a mistake, maybe I should be more in tune with my analytics, but I do a lot of it sort of by gut. Something I've always wondered when I listen to your show is uh, how much research you put into both uh, the food you're going to talk about and also the guests you're going to be talking to, because I would imagine that, let's say you have a guest who ends up being, you know, pretty unresponsive, it helps to know a lot about their background and their and their, their history. How much how much research are you doing? Uh, a pretty good amount. It's a fine line, though, because I, I, I go through phases periodically where, like, recently I, I got to a point where I felt like I was kind of over-prepared for some of my interviews. And by that I mean, like, when you go in with 40 questions that you've written, plus there's always going to be questions you come up with in the moment, I, I would go in and I would sort of have this anxiety from the start, like, oh, God, I have this long list of questions. I have so much to get to. And I would be too rushed and too focused on getting to the next question and not um, not getting lost in the conversation enough. You, know, you want to get lost in the conversation and, and be listening to what the person's saying and be able to react to it. And, you know, it's very important to me, the style of show that I do, that it, it, I want it to feel like a conversation, a real conversation not just me asking a, a question, it's not just question, answer, question, answer, but an actual give and take. And to do that, you have to really listen to what the other person's saying and react to it. I think I've gotten better at that, but there are always times that I, you know, get distracted or get too focused on getting to the next thing. And so I do a, a decent amount of prep. Um, I like to, you know, but I, I like to read up a lot, but not write too many questions. And then the main thing is I try to go in with, with, sort of like part one, part two, part three. 
like what's the basic arc here? Like I'm going to start off talking about this and then move to that and then move to that and then end on this. And that kind of, then I always know in the back of my head, I, I know where I'm going. In terms of the food research, it really depends on the food. If it's something I've been eating regularly, then I just sort of take a few minutes to think about it. A lot of these foods, like, you know, I'm sort of OCD by nature. I think about these foods all the time anyway, so sometimes I haven't done any research on the food, but I still, you know, have these ideas spur of the moment, or it's just like I have these ideas on reserve. Sometimes if I know there's a certain food that I really want to be talking about in detail that I haven't had in a while, I'll make a point of going out and eating it um, just to sort of, like, have it fresh in my head. Like, I had a phone call, a caller called in with a question about a latte, and I'm like, I don't drink lattes, but she wanted to know about the foam in a latte. So I went ahead and bought a latte and drank it just to be like, okay, now I can answer this woman's question when she calls, you know, that kind of thing. I love the dedication there. <laughs> Drinking a latte for the team. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, I've never really spent any time with cheese under my burger. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, Dan, I, you know, not, not to sound like we are reading from a script here, although we do show prep. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I I I, I want to talk a bit a bit more. Uh, I want to talk a bit about eat more better. Um, you know, getting you know somebody can start a podcast in their bedroom or their garage or you know sort of like you and I and Brad have here. But a book is a lot harder to do, and there's a lot more moving pieces, especially with a publisher. How, how did your how did the book come about? Um, yeah, no, you're you're right. And the book came about basically. I got an email about a year into the podcast. From, um, from an uh, from an editor at uh, at a publisher saying, "Hey, love your podcast. Have you ever thought about writing a book?" And I said, "Well, you know, I thought about it vaguely, but not not really." So I had a meeting with her. She was very nice and very encouraging. She said, "Well, you need a literary agent." So she picked uh, four or five literary agents that she thought could be a good fit for me. Introduced me to all of them. I went and met with each of them and picked the one that I liked the best. And um, that literary agent helped me put together a book proposal. And then we took the book proposal out and shopped it around to a bunch of different publishers. And through some combination of it, I guess, being a good book proposal and just good timing, uh, people were in the mood for a book like that in that moment, and it kind of hit, and we got a great response to the proposal. Um, I think she sent the proposal to nine publishers, and seven of them met with us, and six of them offered book deals. And then, you know, we went through the different offers, and the offers went up, and we took the, the, the one with Simon & Schuster, which, I, which was obviously super exciting for me. I was like, holy crap, crap like Simon & Schuster, um, which is kind of an amazing thing. And so, so that was how it came about. Now, now, again, that was another, like, you know, fast. Like, you know, at that time, the Sportful was still a side project. So that whole process of just finding the agent and writing the book proposal and shopping the proposal and getting a book deal was like a year because I just was, it was nights and weekends, you know? Uh, so that was a year right there. And when the, I finally got the book deal, I got it in advance, and that was enough for me to cut back on my day side work and focus a little more on the book and the podcast. And writing the book took probably a year um, as like a part-time job. And it was, you know, and then, then WMIC came along and they wanted to invest in the show. And that was like, sort of the crowning achievement, and that made it a job job. But um, then, you know, then the book was done, and it was like eight or ten months until it came out. You know, it's a long time, and then it comes out, and it's the whole promotion process, which is a whole other ball of wax. So it's it's three years from start to finish. Am I hearing that correctly? 
That's about right. In my case, I mean, if if you if you can devote full time to writing a book, and if you can pitch the book, like from the time you have a book proposal you're ready to go out with, you go out and pitch it. In my case, at least, I can't, I can't speak to everyone, but like like once you once the book is being pitched, it's a relatively short process. Like the, the literary agent's job is to kind of like generate a frenzy. Um, and so you take it out. There's like a, a bidding process. It, hopefully, if you're lucky, uh, there's a bidding process, and then you pick the, you know, partly who offers you the best deal, and partly the publisher that you think you're the best creative fit with. For with like, who understands the book? Who's going to be a good supporter of the book? And, and you know, what editor are you going to work with? And is the editor going to help you to achieve your creative vision for the book? So those are all the considerations. Um, so in me, it was three years. I would say, like, you know, if uh, if you were, you know, it could be done in two or two and a half if you're moving faster. But it takes a really long time. Again, I, I think it's one of those things that most people think that, uh, you know, people who are authors and have books come out, whether they're cookbooks or, or what you wrote or fiction, they just sort of pop out of their head and they're, you know, they're on the shelves the next day. And that's certainly not the case, which is kind of what I wanted to demonstrate there. Yeah, absolutely. What was the biggest hurdle you came across when marketing a book about food specifically? The biggest hurdle is that there are two kinds of food books people buy. They buy cookbooks by famous, written by famous people. My book is not a cookbook, and I'm not famous. Um, and the other type of book people buy is diet books, and my book sure as hell isn't a diet book. And it's difficult when uh, it's like it's funny to me that on one hand food is such a big thing. Um, there's two whole television networks devoted entirely to food, and many other food shows and other channels. There's a bazillion books that come out, and websites, and everything. And yet, I actually find it most most of it to be very narrow. Like I feel like the food media, 99% of food media talks about 1% of what you could talk about. I feel like on the sporkful and in my book, I talk about the other 99% of what you could talk about. But it's people are people tend to buy the things that they're that seem familiar to them already. Cookbook, everyone gets what a cookbook is. My book is very different. It's not like any other book, and I'm very proud of that on a creative level. But as my editor had said to me, you know, these kinds of books, you know, the books that break a format are the ones that are the hardest to sell because they're different and it's hard to explain it to people. But once they get it, they tend to be the books that people love the most because they're new and different and people get excited about it, like in a way that they don't typically get excited about another pie cookbook. Um, so I think the biggest hurdle was just trying to get people excited about something that's so different. As someone who's growing in the food media world, from podcast to the book to the show, how, how important do you think the book was in growing the brand of Dan Pashman? It was very important. It was very important. Uh, first of all, it just gave me legitimate – first of all, getting paid to write a book allowed me to focus more time on, my, on what were side projects. That's number one. Number two, uh, it just gave me legitimacy. Like when I you know, was coming to WNYC and very eager to work with the talented people here, I – when I told them that I had a book deal with Simon and Schuster, that impressed that impresses people. You know, it makes you seem like you're not just a guy doing a podcast in his basement anymore when you have a book deal with Simon and Schuster. So it gives you legitimacy. Um, and then the actual period of the book deal, you know, anytime you're promoting or marketing yourself, you know, uh, on out there in the media, you know, they always want to peg. 
you need a peg. And I think I think sometimes pegs are overrated. Sometimes they make sense. But like, there are, there were shows that wouldn't have me on to just to talk about cheeseburgers because at that point, like, I wasn't a recognized authority on eating a cheeseburger. But if you say, well, I have a book out, they're like, oh, well, we understand that. We have authors on all the time. And all of a sudden, these shows that wouldn't have you on to promote your work before because your, your pitch seemed too weird or you hadn't gotten a foot in the door and proven yourself with them, when you tell them you want to come on to promote your book, they understand that. And so that was really helpful. So I got on a lot of shows that I had never been on before. And the podcast audience doubled. And during the three months of my what I call my book promotion time, the podcast audience doubled. So would you would you say that the book was a turning point in the career of the Sporkful? Definitely. Yeah, definitely, for all the reasons I said. Awesome. Well, I want you to know that whether you had the book or not, we still would have wanted to have you on this show. It just so happens that our timing is after the book. So I don't want you to think that the book got you to our show. Okay? <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, Rev, you were on the Sporkful. Your original appearance was well before the book as well um, and then was repeated more recently. Um, so, to people, you know, I'm sure you'll link to that to your uh, listeners. But no, you were on board. You and I were on board together uh, way before anything happened with the book. So, since you brought that up, I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we're going to use the, that as the segue out of all this brainy stuff we're talking about and get into some fun. Uh, so, yes, I was on the Sporkful a couple years ago, and Dan and I had the most intense conversation about cheese placement on a burger I have ever had in my life, or I have ever had again. Uh, and it was completely fun, and it was very silly, and it really, to me, was just like two guys talking burgers, and it was years ago. And, and to get back to a point that you made earlier in this conversation, uh, you know, you put that on your blog or on your on your podcast, I put it on my blog, whatever years go by. When that got re-picked up uh, earlier this year and, and, and brought on to Huffington Post, which you're contributing for, correct? Yeah, I write for them sometimes, exactly, yeah. We'll talk about that. Uh, anyway, somebody at a television production uh, company heard that episode, called me the next day, and said, we want you to be on the cooking channel, and that was it. That's how I got into Food Factor Fiction. So had, had you never invited me on that show, and had I never stuck around in the business and continued to persevere and stick to it, uh, I would have not made a jerk out of myself <laughs> watching a horse ride around in circles. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I didn't realize that had happened, but I'm really glad that, that worked out. It, it, um, it was. Yeah, and um, yeah, no, that, I mean that that kind of thing makes me excited because, like, you know, I like it when I have my friends on the show and something good happens to them because people hear it, and it's exciting to think that you know that the show has that kind of reach that like people are listening to it. But um, but yeah, if people want to check it out on the Sporkful podcast feed, the re the it's called um, a flavor chemist explains burger toppings, and it's June June 2015 it came out. Part of the interview is with another guy, and part of the interview is with is with you, Rev. There you go. There's an analytic for you. So let's talk about your friends. How did your feud with John Hodgman about hot dogs begin? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, I often on the Sporkful cover sort of matters of definitions and things like that, and it's in my book as well. So when John Hodgman was asked in his New York Times Magazine column, is a hot dog a sandwich? And he said, no, it is not. I, a bunch of my listeners came to me and were like, did you hear this? What do you think? Like people were clamoring for a response. So I, I responded to him. I sort of had like a, a response in my podcast. Then I went and talked about it on the Leonard Lopez show in WNYC and Hodgman. And I had, I had reached out to Hodgman. I tried to get him on the podcast. He couldn't make it. Then I was on Leonard Lopez live on WNYC talking about it, and Hodgman called in live, un, uninvited, like as a regular caller, 
to argue about it. So there was this side of this fear. This was like a year and a half ago, way before it became this big national to-do. Um, so it was kind of simmering, and we had exchanged tweet fire over it here and there. Uh, he, he called me out on his podcast a couple times. And then, like, we knew we wanted to do a live event this fall. Um, this was, like, back in the spring, spring or summer. Uh, we knew we wanted to do a live event this fall in New York. Um, I wanted to do it at the Bell House in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, and I – so we reserved, like, three dates at the Bell House, and I emailed Hodgman, like, in this, like months ago. and was like, I want to do this. I want to do our de a debate. I want you there. We have three dates held. You tell me what date works for you, and that's when we'll do the event. And he said, great, this is the date. And we, we confirmed the date with the Bell House, and that was it. And so uh, he was a great sport, and I'm a huge admirer of his work. I've been a fan of his for a really long time. So uh, it was super exciting to me that he that he came. I was I was very flattered. So, yeah. You'll have to, I don't know that we should tell them who won the debate. You may have to listen to the podcast to hear, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, I listened to it, and it, like – it is a 30-minute show, and with I kept wanting to skip to the end, and I could not. I had I wanted to sit through the whole thing. The show was really entertaining, really well put together. He clearly thought this out, and you clearly had done your prep. But uh, people should definitely uh, pe people should check that out. It's a, it's a good listen. Thanks, man. All right, so I have another question about another guest you have. Uh, how do you feel about Sammy Hager's pronunciation of the word Basile? Oh. <laughs> I think he said basil. Basil, basil. That was it. How he says basil. Basil instead of basil. I did pick up on that, and I did find that very funny. I think that basil is the correct pronunciation, is the way that uh, people in the UK say it. Um, and so I think it's kind of hilarious that Sammy Hagar would have a have any kind like he's such a sort of salt of the earth kind of guy, and the fact that he has this one word that he says with a stuffy British accent, I thought was hilarious. Yeah, I thought maybe. Our boy Maybe. Rev here says tomato instead of tomato. I don't think it's so out of place. <laughs> that's, that's true. But when I say tomato, you don't think I'm putting like a stuffy British guy from Austin Powers into my food. <laughs> Fair enough. Dan, how are people eating burgers wrong? How are they eating burgers wrong? Well, I mean, you know, as, as, as Rev knows, I believe that people should eat the burger with the cheese on the bottom to bring the cheese closer to your tongue and accentuate cheesy goodness. It also creates a seal so that the juices don't make your bottom bun soggy. And I would further add um, that I don't think that like raw onions should be on a burger. Like, I, and and the burger fixins like the lettuce when exposed to the heat of the burger turns soft and mushy. The tomato is often mealy. I think that the the the, the typical fixin setup, the the lettuce, tomato, raw onion, and pickle should be eaten separately from the burger in a sort of lettuce glove. Uh, grip those ingredients with a lettuce glove and add like some ketchup and mustard and salt and pepper. And that I think is actually the perfect palate cleanser and alternate between bites of burger and bites of fixins. And I think that's so the way to do I, it. I saw you do that in a clip and I, I, what I don't understand is why do you need a palate cleanser in between bites of the same thing? Well, that's exactly why you need a palate cleanser because because people experience something called palate fatigue, and so when you have the same bite over and over again, it will be less. You will get less pleasure from it. Now, if it's a really, really amazing burger and you're really, really hungry, yeah, you'll probably still enjoy the last bite. But if you do something to reset your palate in the middle, then it's like you're, then the next bite will be could be almost as good as the very first bite. 
See, that's funny because when you talk about how people are eating it wrong and, and you go into this palate cleanser thing uh, with the vegetables that are on top of it, I would say you're eating it wrong by having rabbit food on it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I agree with that too. But I think it works as a, as a palate cleanser. Um, you mentioned soggy buns. Have you ever tried a burger lift? Are you aware of the burger lift? No, tell me about that. Oh. So we actually had the one of the inventors of the burger lift on the show a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's a small grate that you put under your burger when it's served so that when you lift the burger up and take a bite, the juices fall to the plate, but your burger doesn't go back on the plate and you don't have to hold it in your hand. Juices drip to the plate, you put your burger back on this little metal or plastic grate, depending on how much money you want to spend on your burger lift. That is pretty amazing. That's very clever. We'll have we'll have to connect Dan with uh, with with Tanzillo and the rest of the burger lifters for yeah. sure. So Dan, we we end our show the the same way every time. We're gonna ask you a couple of standard questions here. Uh, starting off with, what was your favorite hamburger from childhood? Favorite burger from ch- well, first of all, it'd be a cheeseburger. Amen. But was there like a place you went to, or like a child, uh, somewhere your mom, dad took you, somewhere you like to go with your friends? I mean, I, I do have some pretty good memories of fast food burgers. Uh, my dad made pretty good burgers in the backyard. There was a steak sandwich at a place near me that I remember really liking. But I'm trying to think. Picture it in my head. Did we stump Dan from the Sporkful with a hamburger question? They have. Let me see. I don't want to say that it was a fast food burger. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also nothing wrong with saying that it was from your dad's from your dad's cooking. Right, right. Was, those two burgers were so different. It's hard to really compare to them. Um, so you know what is? People out there who are listening to this podcast are thinking we've stumped Dan. The truth is that Dan is pretty cerebral when it comes to food and food memories that he actually wants to nail this one. Right. He's, yeah. he's thinking down. He's like, well, does that mean fast food? Does it mean my parents cooked it? Did, did it mean I go, got there because I got an A-plus on my math report card? Yeah, but I have to say that... Yeah, I think it would probably be like from some, from some fast food place or the ones my dad made. If I think of something better, I'll let you know. All right, so this will probably be a little bit easier. What's the best burger you've had recently? Well, I'd have to say we shot an episode of You're Eating It Wrong about burgers uh, at a place in L.A. called Ashland Hill. And I did it with this, the chef there, Brad Miller. And that burger was really, really good. Um, he had like a... Uh, was it a confit like with onions and bacon in it? But it was kind of sweet and salty, but it wasn't overkill. It was like a, a nice touch to, on the burger, and it was just like cooked just right, real crusty on the outside, and rare in the middle. Fantastic. I want to eat this right now. <laughs> Dan, last question. What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone in the food marketing business? Quality over quantity. Like you're trying to get people to promote what you're doing. You're trying to get people to take notice. Like take time and build relationships. And when you go to someone to ask them to promote what you're doing, don't send them a mass email. Don't send 100 people a mass email. Pick the 10 people who are most likely to help you and email each one of them individually and personally and personalize each email. Because I get mass emails all the time from publicists and marketers. And, and the first thing I look at is, is this specifically to me? Or is it a mass email? And if it's a mass email, I have to leave. Because what I do is different. And if you're not going to take give me the basic respect of like listening to my show before you pitch me a dumb idea, then I don't really care about your idea. But if you're going to take the time, and there are some publicists I work with who are fantastic, who only pitch me once or twice a year, 
and they listen to what we do. And when they pitch something, we don't always do it, but it's always near the mark. And I do the same thing when I'm marketing. What I'm doing to other people, I don't, I don't go to every contact every time. I pick and choose. I pick my spots, and I pick the right people for the right situations. And they appreciate that. And that way, when they hear from me, they know that I'm probably going to be coming to them with something they're going to like because I don't come to them very often. Dan, that is that is some great advice and definitely a, a hot button topic here on Like Bite and Share. Uh, you know, Brad and I are also in the game like you are, and we do get those emails. And uh, Brad and I would agree that we are very fond of hitting delete. Yeah. <laughs> so Dan, before we let you go here today, you want to tell people where they can find out more about you and the show? Yeah. Well, the Sporkful podcast is in iTunes, the podcast app, the WNYC app, wherever you get this podcast, you can get the Sporkful podcast. Um, you can watch the Cooking Channel web series at cookingchannel.tv.com slash wrong. Um, and you can check out my blog and find links to the book and all my other work at sporkful.com. Awesome, Dan. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. And um, everybody, make sure you check out all of Dan's projects, buy his book, and watch him on the TV. Thanks, and, guys. And donate to WNYC to support the podcast. Yes, please do. The largest share of our of our funding comes from you, the loyal listeners. So go to sportful.com slash donate right now and get some cool swag. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.